Okay, we are continuing along through the book of Philippians, and we are in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5a, and um, as we've been working our way through this book, a reminder that it is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote from prison to the church in Philippi church that he had started about a decade earlier. And we're nearing the end of this letter now. And as we do, we'll see that Paul revisits some of the themes he's focused on throughout the letter and gives some very specific application. In the sermon today, we'll see how he revisits the themes of unity in the Lord and joy in the Lord. First, we'll look at unity. Unity. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells the Philippian Christians that his desire is for them, uh, for, the, for their manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that they would live in a way that flows out of the amazing salvation they have received, the salvation based purely on God's generous grace. And part of this, Paul explains, includes them standing firm, standing firm together in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He sees this as something that they do together in unity. He calls the Philippian Christians to a unity that exists because of their shared faith and their shared mission. They need to link arms in the face of persecution and trials that they're going through because of their faith. They need to stand firm in their beliefs, in their faithful Christian walk, and they need to strive to work hard side by side to advance the gospel message together, to share and spread the gospel even in the face of significant suffering. And Paul reminds the Philippians that standing for Christ and advancing the gospel can be difficult and that they need each other. They're in this together and they need each other. Soon after that in the letter, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul gives the beautiful example, the beautiful picture of Jesus in His incarnation in Him coming to earth to die for us. And the challenging call to follow His example. Paul calls the Philippians in verse 2 to have the same mind and the same love and to be in full accord, that is to be fully united in their life and purpose. And the way they ought to do that is by being humble, by getting their focus off themselves and on to God and others. As verse 3 puts it, they need to consider others as more important than themselves. And as verse 5 puts it, by all of them together choosing to adopt the mindset of Jesus who did not hold on to the comforts and pleasures of heaven as much as he was worthy of it, but instead chose to enter this world And live as one of his creation, as a lowly servant, and to die even a torturous, shameful death 
on a cross. And he did so to meet our greatest need and to serve us in providing us with a way of salvation. And he did so to obey God the Father and bring him glory. So once again, we see here a call to unity uh, that comes from a shared mission and a shared purpose in life, from a shared number one priority in life, as we all look to the same Savior and Lord and worship for all, and we all seek to follow His call and imitate His life and join Him in advancing the purpose of God to save people through the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul exhorts the Philippians to stand out in the world because of the absence of grumbling or disputing amongst them. To hold fast together, that is, to hold fast to the word of life, to the gospel message that saves them. Again, this is a call to unity to the sort of conduct with each other uh, by not grumbling and not insisting on preferences and not getting into arguments. This is the sort of conduct that helps them maintain unity. And it's a call to help one another in the Christian life, to stand firm together, a unity based on their shared beliefs and the shared course that they are running together. Then in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, we see the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Men Paul points the Philippians to as examples that they should honor and imitate because of their selfless, others-centered lives and their commitment to fulfilling the mission we have been given by Jesus. The mission to advance the gospel even in the face of significant trials and suffering. This outlook is an outlook that binds Christians together, that unites us. And that brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloveds, my, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Another call, like back in chapter 1, verse 27, for all of them to stand together, to stand firm in the Lord together. And then our, our, our passage for today. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul has been tracing this theme of unity unity throughout his letter, and now he focuses in on two ladies, two specific ladies, who have been at odds with one another. And he calls them to work through their conflict and be united. Imagine this scenario, though. This letter is being read to the entire church. And as it's being read, everything so far has been very general. Imagine being 
these two ladies in the congregation as now you get to the end of the letter and now your names are read out. Obviously, it's something important to Paul. It's important to Paul that they work through their differences and be united. Not surprisingly, we should note that what we see uh, here are some of the same grounds for them to work, as some of the grounds for them to work through their conflict and be united. These are the same grounds for unity that we've been seeing throughout the letter. So why should they be united? And why should we be united? Because we have the same Savior and the same destiny. The unity the Bible calls for in the church doesn't require us to be identical, cookie-cutter people with all the same preferences and all the same perspectives on every matter, down to the tiniest detail. People are different, and it's quite normal for people to have different preferences and to hold different perspectives on some matters, especially when we consider the incredible diversity that makes up the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is for every grouping of people imaginable. Right? We see throughout the New Testament, it is for Jew and Gentile, despite centuries of despising each other, they are to be united in the church. It's for the educated and the uneducated, the person raised in the city and the person raised in a rural area. It's for the rich and the poor. It's for the CEO and the car guard, right? The lawyer and the petrol attendant, the doctor and the maid. It's for the young and old. It's for men and women. It's for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that includes people from either side of every ethnic prejudice and hostility in history. People from every side of every tribal hatred that's existed. In the church, white and black are brothers. Hutus and Tutsis are brothers. People from different castes in India are brothers. And of course, under these umbrellas, these broad umbrellas are dozens and dozens, hundreds of opportunities to misunderstand each other, to pass judgment over silly preferential things, to prefer your own culture over other cultures' ways of doing things, like food or clothing or ways of greeting or table manners or ideas of what is and is not modest and what is and is not respectful or polite opportunities for us to rub each other the wrong way are many. Different music preferences, different ideas of what we think is suitable clothing for church. The list goes on and on and on. But as Christians, we can and must agree in the Lord. We can remind ourselves that what we have in common is what is most central, most important, and eternal. When we remember our shared Savior and our eternal destiny, we have common ground that supersedes all our worldly differences. Okay? 
we look down at this passage again, they are reminded to agree. They are called, they are pleaded with to agree in the Lord. And they are reminded, right, that their names are both in the book of life. They'll spend eternity together. They need to work through their differences. As Ephesians 4 puts it, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's many ways we're different, many things we can disagree over, but the most important and lasting things we have in common, we are one in the Lord. So, Yodi and Sintiki are called upon to agree in the Lord and to remember the unity Jesus has brought about for them. They're also reminded of their shared mission. Their shared mission. Verse 3 says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Being on mission together both forges close bonds of unity and requires close bonds of unity. It forges close bonds of unity as you share the same priorities and passion and aim and work together for shared goals as you labor side by side in the thick of things together through highs and lows, facing even great challenges together. So on one level, Paul seeks to remind these ladies, we've been through a lot. You've been through a lot together. You've labored together for the sake of the gospel. Don't let other things get between you. And to share mission together requires close bonds of unity. Why? Because you have to work together and you can't do that well when you allow issues to get between you and you're divided by this or that. Let's think practically here about a very simple church scenario. Okay? Uh, let's say that in Schleinschloh has been doing a good job being welcoming to people who visit the GC and he's been regularly inviting people to GC. But then imagine that there's something between Vincent and him. Vincent has said something that's offended him. And just for the record, this hasn't actually happened. It's just an illustration. Uh, so Vincent said something that's offended him. Uh, and now because he's upset with Vincent, he starts to skip GC from time to time. Uh, and when he is there, he's not there like he used to be there. He's not fully engaged with people. Uh, he, he tries to avoid Vincent in particular. Um, and and it's just he's just not fully there. He's not as warm and engaging to visitors as he was before, and he stops bringing his own visitors to GC because of the awkwardness that's there. Even in this simple situation, brothers and sisters, I hope you can see how the advance of the gospel is hindered. We're no longer working together as the body that we should be. Right? 
And Schlanschl is no longer using his gifts as he should be because he's distracted by this conflict he has with Brother Vincent. Okay? And that, as I say, is, a, is, is just a very simple illustration. And if it's true in even just such a simple scenario like that, it's certainly true in, in more involved things, right? Vincent and Schlanschler are not going to be, get, are not going to be uh, brainstorming together about what they can do to take the gospel to, uh, to the Schwani South Campus. They're not going to be spending time together, evangelizing together. They're not going to be uh, calling one another up to help a friend of theirs with, with a ride to a church event. Uh, they're not going to be leaning on one another to help one another in reaching out to people. They're not going to be hosting uh, a meal together to, uh, to, to reach out to some students and try and spend some time with them and share the gospel together with them. None of that is going to be happening if they can't work through the issues between them so that they can get on with the mission that God's called them to live out together. The parts of the body are not working together. And instead of running fluently, we end up just limping along. So Paul tells these ladies to work this out. Keep perspective of what is most important. And he asks someone in the church as well, you see there, I ask you also loyal companion, um, true companion rather, depending on your translation, verse 3, help these women who have labored side by side with me. Help them work it out. If this was important in the Philippian church, it's important here too. We need to be committed to working out any differences between us, any conflicts between us, that is. And we need to be committed to even enter into the messiness of helping other people work out their conflicts. Because we realize that it's important if we are to faithfully fulfill the mission God has given us. Lastly, look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, Some of your translations might say, Let your gentleness be known to everyone. And this isn't the easiest easiest word uh, to translate, uh, it carries an idea of, 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 of gentleness. It carries an idea of selflessness or, or being self-effacing. So, so you know, um, instead of uh, boasting about yourself, you, you, you minimize yourself. Okay? Um, and that's where the idea of reasonableness comes in, is that you're not somebody who's prone to causing conflict. You're somebody who's actually pretty good at at minimizing conflict because you don't make it about yourself, okay? So there's plenty of opportunities for people to offend you, to step on your toes, to ruffle your feathers, but you you don't make it about yourself. You're humble enough to, to have your focus be on others, okay? 
and you're gentle in terms of how you actually engage them, so that even if you have hard things to say, you say them in the easiest way to be received. Okay? Let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Okay? Paul's saying here, this unity is important. You want, to be the, you want to be people who resolve conflicts when you have conflicts. You want to be people who help others resolve conflicts when they have conflicts. And you want to conduct yourself in a way where as much as possible, you, you minimize opportunity for conflict. Okay? And I'm not talking here about being spineless, about not being yourself, uh, about not having the convictions that you have or, or coming from the culture that you come from. I'm definitely not talking about um, uh, being wishy-washy when it comes to important doctrinal truths. But in all these things, we can conduct ourselves in, in ways that are it can be very unnecessarily abrasive. We can conduct ourselves in ways... That, that bring about conflict, or we can go about things in a way where we, it's clear, it's evident to people that we're trying to be understanding. We're trying to be considerate. We're trying to promote unity. Okay? It's clear to people that we, we're not trying to make this about us and our preferences and our way of doing things, but we're trying to keep Jesus central. Okay? And if Jesus is not spelled something out in clearly black and white in the scriptures, then we're not going to make it a hill to die on. Okay? That's how we should be conducting ourselves in the church. Because of the unity we have in Christ, because of our shared Savior and our shared destiny, and because we need to be united if we're going to be able to faithfully fulfill the mission God has given us. We have to be able to work together as one body. The other theme Paul talks about in this section is joy. And just like unity, joy is something we've seen throughout this letter. All the way back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we saw that Paul was joyful because of the clear evidence he saw of the Philippians' saving faith. And because of their partnership with him in advancing the gospel. And because of the confidence he had that God would continue the work he had begun in them. Right? That he would bring it to completion. And then chapter 1 verse 18. Even though Paul is in prison and has had the unpleasant experience of having other Christian leaders outside take advantage of his difficult situation to somehow compete with him and seek to become more known and appreciated in Christian circles than him, Paul notes, he just says, What then? If Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Okay? If Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. It's not about him. It's about the gospel going forward and Jesus being glorified. Then further down, verses 21 to 26 talks about the fact that his fate in prison is still unknown. He doesn't know. Is he going to be released? Is he going to be executed? If he is going to be released, when is he going to be released? And as he wrestles through what he would choose for himself if he could, 
He says this, he says, to die and be with Christ would be better by far. But as he considers the ministry opportunities he would have with the Philippians and others if he lived on, he decides that he would choose that. He would choose to live on further for more ministry, for their progress and joy in the faith. There again, for he wants, he wants to help them have joy in the faith. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, Paul again considers the possibility of his execution. And he says here that as long as believers are living godly, fruitful, God-glorifying lives, as long as the mission is moving forward, he rejoices. He rejoices. Even, even, if, he's, even if he's executed. Remember, this is the, the, the portion where he talks about himself being the drink offering that's poured out on the offering of, of, of their holy, God-glorifying lives. And he's, he's willing, he's eager to embrace death if it's under the circumstances where, where God is being glorified. In chapter 2, verse 28, he tells the Philippian church that he sent Epaphroditus back to them so that they could rejoice at seeing him again. And in verse 29, he instructs them to receive him back with joy and to honor him because of his sacrifice and the risks he took to complete the ministry they gave him to visit Paul in prison and care for him. Chapter 3, verse 1, he tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, even as they face the challenges of false teachers in their city. And then in 4, verse 1, we saw this verse already, he describes the Philippian Christians as his joy and crown. That's a lot of references to joy. And as we trace them, we can note a few things. Paul's joy is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. It is always tied to the faith. It's based on the evidence of the gospel at work in the lives of people. It's based on God saving people, growing people, making them faithful and bold in ministry. Those are the things he rejoices to see. It's based on opportunities he's been given to spread the gospel. It's based on seeing the gospel move forward, even when he's fading from the spotlight, even when there's nothing he can do himself, and he feels like his hands are tied and he's just stuck in prison doing nothing. He's rejoicing because of what God is doing. It's based on the bond he shares with other believers. It's based on the joy of being used by God in the lives of others and being used by God for his glory. So his joy is in the Lord. And we see that Paul is also able to have this joy always, just as he calls the Philippians to, and as he calls us to, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul has this joy in prison. He has this joy as others seek to compete with him for fame and prominence in the Christian community. He has this joy as he faces the possibility of execution and death. 
Why? Why? Because the gospel is real and God is at work no matter what our physical circumstances look like. The things his joy uh, are based in are things that are permanent, things that are guaranteed, things that are unshakable. God is at work. He doesn't need us. It's wonderful when he uses us. But ultimately, even when he's not using us, or, not, or it seems to us he's not using us, it seems to us our opportunities are limited, we can still, like Paul, recognize nothing, right? As we saw last week in the sermon last week, nothing can thwart God's purposes. He is building his church. His gospel is going forth. One day, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be around his throne, worshiping him and praising him. He is accomplishing his purposes in the world. What's the worst that can happen to Paul? What's the worst that can happen to us? Death, right? That's normally what people would say. But right, to depart and be with Christ is far better. And as we saw last week, Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Remember, this is we're talking about a new heavens and a new earth. We're talking about new bodies, not just physically, but on the, in the most important way, right? Bodies that no longer desire to sin. We're talking about being transformed, um, sorry, conformed to the image of Christ in character, in holiness. Brothers and sisters, no matter what our circumstances are in this life, Jesus wins. And we have a glorious eternity awaiting us, no matter how difficult things get here. Therefore, we can rejoice and rejoice always. Amen? Thank you. We'll close off our service with...